Hey, everyone. Good afternoon. It is Saturday. That's something to smile about. It's 106, and Let's Get Legal, powered by the Illinois State Bar Association, is coming up next. And I am so thrilled to be back after being gone for a couple weeks. It's such a thrill to be with you all here on WGN. We do have a question of the day. I'll give it to you in a moment. We're also going to talk about something. I had never heard of this. Let's say you hire a contractor, and we've got so many great ones that we talk with on these shows. It would never happen with one of them. But let's say you hire a contractor to do some work in your house. Turns out great. You pay the contractor. You think you're all done. And then you find out that you owe somebody else thousands and thousands of dollars. This is possible because of an interesting law called mechanics lien. And I have no idea what that is, but we're going to have a lawyer tell us. And I bet someone like you may have gone through it. 312-981-7200 if you've ever experienced this. We'll also talk about liability involving summer travel. Boy, the travel season's heating up. And uh, lots of people on the roads, lots of injuries happening. We've seen it in the news recently. The folks from Clifford Law will join us. But our question of the day today is, tomorrow in Western Springs, you can't do this till 9 a.m. In Buffalo Grove, you can't do it till 8 a.m. In Naperville, you can't do it till 7 a.m. Hmm, what am I talking about? 312-981-7200. We got a great prize. See if you can guess the answer here on Let's Get Legal, powered by the Illinois State Bar Association on WGN. 720 WGN. Yes, this is Let's Get Legal. It is powered by the Illinois State Bar Association, as you just heard. And we have got a great show for you today. If this is your first time tuning in, we take a look at uh, big stories in the news and things that impact you from a legal lens. And we hope to answer your questions. And the story of how you may be on the hook for thousands of dollars for work that you already paid for uh, really shook me. And we're going to have someone explain that in a little bit. 312-981-7200 is the call-in number. And our question of the day is, in Western Springs, you can't do this till 9 a.m. tomorrow. In Buffalo Grove, you can't until 8 a.m. And in Naperville, you can start as early as 7 And I thought this was a tricky question, and boy, was I wrong. So after we get the answer, I do have some questions for everyone else that's still on the line, so don't hang up. But the first one to call in was Carol. Hey, Carol, how you doing this Saturday afternoon? Hi, I'm good. How about you? I'm doing really well. Uh, You're calling from Elmhurst. What's your guest? Um, Mow the grass. Mow the grass is the answer to the question of the day, Carol. Congratulations. Thank you very much. When can you mow the lawn in Elmhurst? What time? Um, not actually, sir. I don't get up too early and mow it. Do you ever hear people mowing it too early and you and you don't like it? Um. Oh, yes. I have a neighbor <laughs> that mows early. <laughs> I think everyone does. That's actually what inspired me to ask this question, is I saw so many people commenting over the last couple of weeks as mowing the lawn becomes more uh, in season, complaining about people mowing it too yep. early. Uh, Carol, you stay on the line, though. You're going to get a $50 gift card to the 5050 Restaurant Group to be used at any one of their 14 fantastic establishments all over Chicago, including Roots Pizza and Westtown Bakery. All right? Thank you very much. All right, that's good. Ashley Byhan, who's producing this show. Ashley, do you mind putting Carol on line two on hold before I hang up on her? Let's go to Carrie. Carrie, I know you had the answer out in Woodstock. How you doing, Carrie? Good, thank you, John. I know that was your guest, but I want to know do you have a, do you know what time you can mow the lawn in Woodstock? No, I don't. I live out in the country part. So there's probably no rules, right? You can probably do it whenever. Right. Yes. All right. Well, Carrie, have a good one. All right. You too. Thank you. Yeah, let's go to Joe. Hey, Joe in Palatine. I know you had the right answer too, my friend. Hi, buddy. How are you? You're doing good. When can you mow the lawn in Palatine? I think it's 8 o'clock. 8 o'clock. That sounds fine for me. 
Anytime around 8 a.m., you know, I know it's the weekend. I know people like to sleep in. But 8 a.m., mowing the grass, that doesn't sound too bad. No, I like 9 o'clock because, you know, when you get those people you want to sleep on Sunday for the one day a week, you could sleep in. I'm a 9 o'clock guy. 9 o'clock. So 8 o'clock, someone's mowing, you're not happy about it. No, not at all. But you don't got you don't. You're, you're, you're doing a great job. I love listening to you. Thank you. Joe, that's very kind of you to say. Thank you so much. All right, 312-981-7200. I, I guess every state has these different rules, every municipality. And, in fact, I found a lot of laws relating to mowing the lawn. In fact, that states, municipalities, not only just homeowners associations, but municipalities can force you to mow the lawn. Now, I've, I've owned a condo before, and I've never owned a home. So I imagine so many of you are rolling your eyes saying, yes, John, everybody knows this. But I didn't know that they can fine you for not cutting your grass all over the place. Tens of thousands of dollars in fines that people have had. I'll read some more of those stories a little bit later on in the show. But 312-911-7200, we're going to talk about mechanics liens. And it's a, it's, a, it's a law, it's a rule that has nothing to do with mechanics. It's about contractors and what happens if they don't pay their subcontractors. Guess who's on the hook? We'll talk about that next here on Let's Get Legal, powered by the Illinois State Bar Association on WGN. A47 said, following noise ordinance is a big thing in construction. Most towns don't allow construction to begin until 7 a.m., and I'm thankful of that. Right, the loud construction noises on the streets, especially here in Chicago. Yeah, that'll wake you up, and 7 a.m. sounds about right. But not allowing someone to mow the grass till 9 a.m.? That seems late to me. I know I, I, I get 7 or 8, but... Come on, 9 a.m., get out there, 8 o'clock. I love the idea of mowing early, getting done for the day. You can tell I don't actually have a lawn. I don't have to mow anything. But, yeah, that's what I would like. Got a lot of text. Oh, and also thank you, everyone, for the kind notes about uh, coming back. Yeah, I was on my honeymoon, thrice delayed, three years later, honeymoon to uh, Paris and London. And something happened to me on the way back that I'll discuss later that involves legal. Don't worry, nothing. I didn't do anything wrong. But I was flagged for extra scrutiny and security. And a lot of it on my way back. And I had no idea that they do this. It's sort of random. There's other things that if you buy your ticket one way or you pay in cash or you buy it in the past couple of weeks, two of the, those three things we had done. And I got a little uh, orange sticker right on my boarding pass and uh, went through a lot of extra security. So I'm going to chat a little bit about the legal angle and why the United States government and why they can ask other governments to uh, to restrict that or to do that. And it was Perfectly nice. Everyone was fine. It was easy peasy. No problem. But it certainly made me nervous on my uh, trip back. All right. I've been teasing this uh, mechanics lean story because I was just so fascinated by it. And uh, we had to get Adam Whiteman on the line. He is a partner at Whiteman Borden, who uh, they specialize in real estate law. Adam, thanks for hopping on the program with us today. You're welcome, John. It's nice great. to be here. Do you, uh, do you have a lawn that you got to mow, Adam, or no? I do. What, um... what time do you like to mow your lawn? <laughs> Whenever it's too long, right? <laughs> so, yeah, I don't know. Because some people say you got to wait till 9 in the morning to do it, but I say that's too late. Okay, let's jump right into the discussion. A mechanic's lean. I had no idea what that was, and I know it has nothing really to do with mechanics. Can you explain what it is? Well, um, you know, it's a very old law, a hundred over 100 years old uh, in Illinois and in other states have it. And it was created to protect people who did work on real estate to make sure they got paid for improvements. Okay, that sounds fair. We want to make sure they get paid. They did the work. Okay. Exactly. And it's kind of like 
you know, it's uh, it, what happens is they want to protect these people, so they give they give the contractors or people who supply materials a lien, and uh, it's this very similar to like a mortgage. So if you don't pay your lender, uh, you know, they can foreclose on your home, right? Mm-hmm. And so it's kind of similar. You know, when you borrow money, you have to sign two documents from a bank. You sign a promissory note, but you also sign a mortgage. And so the mortgage is the legal document that allows the bank to foreclose or sell your property to, so that the debt can be paid. Mm-hmm. And similarly, you know, a contractor, so there's a law that says, look, if you don't pay your contractor, they have to follow certain rules and give certain notices, but they then can force the sale of your property to get paid. Yeah, so th- and that makes sense to me, right? Like you you want to put in a pool in the backyard and and you, you the contractor does it, they do the work and you don't pay them. That's not fair to the contractor. They should have some sort of ramification to get get it back. But then how can people what scenario would happen where you pay that contractor, you think you're all done and it turns out you have to pay more? What's happened there? Boy, you know, there's a lot of different scenarios that could create that problem. One might be, and I've seen it in my practice, where a contractor will deny that they've been paid. You oh, know, okay. If you, if, you pay, if you pay a contractor in cash, that's a dangerous thing to do because you have no, basically you have no proof of payment. Wow. You know? Yeah, true. So it's good to pay a contractor with a check or with even with a credit card, but anything that you can prove that you paid the contractor. So that's one way you could have a mechanics lien. Or, or even write a, an invoice and have them sign it and say, you know, this was uh, I, this was paid by, I, I got paid, et cetera, et cetera. Exactly. And that's called a lien waiver. You want that contractor to, you can get a receipt saying, I've been paid, but even better, you get that contractor to sign a document that your lawyer can prepare called a lien waiver. And so that, that contractor can no longer file a lien. But here's the problem. Sometimes you hire a contractor to do some work, say you're doing a kitchen rehab, and that contractor in turn hires other people to do work for them. Subcontractors, yeah. Exactly. So there's a diff- people don't always realize that, that there's these tiers of people that uh, work with you to do work on your home. The first level is the person you contracted with, and that's called the contractor. And then the sub-tier is the subcontractor who the contractor contracts with. And you may not now, even know you have a subcontractor. or Maybe they tell you that, but you've never really, you don't meet the people, you don't pay them. The contractor takes care of all this. Exactly. In the best of all, world, all worlds, right? In the best of all possible worlds, the contractor does his job and pays the subcontractors. Sometimes they don't do that. Um, well, then shouldn't the sub- B for the subcontractor just be with the contractor? Or do they have the, the, the same right of law to put a lien on you and your property? Exactly. You really, you, you described it exactly right. A subcontractor who you never, you might not even know did any work on your property has lien rights under Illinois Mechanics Lien Act. And if they follow certain notice provisions and do certain things correctly, they too can cause the foreclosure of your property, even though you paid in full. Whoa! And and you don't find out till what? You get a letter one day. <laughs> yeah, you get a notice of lien from a subcontractor. And I didn't get paid. Uh, you know, and there are time limits. You know, like the the sub. There's all kinds of. It's really an arcane. It's like a game. It's a puzzle. And you know, a subcontractor who's been hired to do work on your residence has to give notice to you technically within 60 days of his first start of work. Hey, I've been hired to work on your property. 
uh, be, be on alert. I might be owed some money. That really should put you on notice that, uh, hey, you got to get lien waivers from the subcontractors, too. Oh, so you can get a waiver from us uh, ahead of time. As mad, it, yes. Well, not ahead of time. You got what you want to do during that time. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Before you pay. So, and that's, there's a document that the law requires owners to ask for, and it requires contractors to give. It's called a sworn statement. And that's something people don't really know about in the context of residential construction. They don't realize that these rules apply to residential construction too, but a sworn statement is this document that the contractor prepares and says, hey, Mr. Homeowner or Mrs. Homeowner, I've hired these subcontractors to do work on your property, and some I paid them this much and I owe them this much, and then technically you're supposed to hold back money to make sure that those subcontractors get paid. And wow. you're allowed, here's the big thing, that all homeowners, if you get anything out of today's conversation, here's the thing. Uh, that a homeowner can require the contractors to give them lien waivers as a prerequisite to payment. But contractors could then walk away and say, I don't want to do that. I imagine some do. Absolutely. They yeah. say, what, what, you don't trust me? Right, right, right. And look, I'm not trying to bash subcontractors. They're just trying to get their money. Now, do they sometimes use this lien as leverage to get you to get your contractor to pay the subcontractor or to find a settlement? Is that sometimes the mechanism? They're not trying to kick you out of your house, but they're just trying to move this along in some way. Yeah, yeah. So that happens. That can happen a lot where contractors and subcontractors threaten homeowners. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to put a lien on your home if you don't you know, do X, Y, or Z, you know, anytime you get into a little, you know, tivy like that with a contractor, you better start calling your attorney because, you know, they're starting to, when they start to threaten like that and, you know, they should sit down and they should do things right and they should give their sworn contractor statement and not use these threats to get paid, you know. So is this a matter of, all right, let's say we're trying to protect against this before this happens. If you're getting work done, should we call uh, our attorney, someone like you, Adam Whiteman, partner at Whiteman Borden, whitemanborden.com, uh, 312-655-1000? Should we be calling you like before we even start the work just to lay out a game plan to have all that paperwork ready? Or do you wait till you hire the contractor and then, you know, someone like you would meet with them or send them a letter? How does that work? You know, yeah. I mean, it really, you got to think about the size of the project too. If you're just calling uh, um, someone in to do a minor repairs on your home, it might not be worth it to hire right. a lawyer. Right. But if it's a bigger project, yeah, you really should get a lawyer ahead of time uh, to go over what the contract between you and the contractor says. You should not do an oral contract, you know, with your contractor. Hey, build me a kitchen for fifty thousand dollars. OK, here we go. Right. No, you know, you got to put these things in writing and, and, and discussing and agreeing on these sworn statements and lien waivers ahead of time is the best way to avoid problems in the, in the future. Yeah. I imagine they have a lot of leverage now, contractors do, because there's, they're in such high demand as people change things. And, you know, that may be harder. So it's a matter of, you know, speaking up for yourself. All right, let's say a, we only got about a minute left. A subcontractor comes after you. That's when we call you, right? <laughs> yeah, definitely. Yeah. If you got a, con- a subcontractor telling you that they're going to put a lien on your home or threatening, uh, uh, you know, all that stuff. Yeah. Definitely get a lawyer on your on your side. Happy to help. And uh, lots of attorneys in Chicago and through the State Bar Association, uh, very skilled people who know about this area of law. Right. I imagine you also do things like what, property disputes, obviously buying and selling a home, you want a real estate agent, foreclosure, defense, all that stuff you guys handle, right? 
Absolutely, yeah. That's interesting stuff. And I never heard of this. And I know there's listeners out there that have gone through it, 312-981-7200. I'm sure people out there have, because I imagine you get a lot of calls about this, right? Maybe not a ton, but they, they come in. Yeah, you know, you take it for granted. I do. You know, I've been practicing law 30 years, and, and you know, this is just my vocabulary. But I'm, I'm, never, I'm always amazed that people don't know about mechanics liens yeah. <laughs> you know, right. until well, it's too late. Well, you met me today, Adam, so there you go. And I host a legal program, so there you are. I'm not a lawyer. Adam Whiteman, partner at Whiteman Borden Law. They do real estate law. Whiteman Borden, B-O-R-D-E-N.com, 312-655-1000, 312-655-1000. Adam, thanks for coming on the program. We appreciate it. Thank you, John. All right. Yep, thank you so much. I know a lot of people are doing that as well, whether it's by train, plane, automobile, whatever. Uh, but Bob Clifford of Clifford Law Offices is a name you're going to want to remember and a number you're going to want to keep if anything happens or things you want to know about. Bob Clifford joins us now. Bob, how are you doing, my friend? Hey, John. Good afternoon. Good to be with you. Bob, I was doing re- great. Thank you. I was uh, reading your resume, and man, you are an accomplished guy. Well, that's kind of you to say. You know, I've been practicing law in Chicago for a long, long time, and I've had the privilege and opportunity of representing people from our community and around the world. Uh, you know, in, in when bad things happen to good people, they look for lawyers, and I've been fortunate enough to be uh, someone that they call. Yeah, and I imagine a lot of people um, call you on some of the worst days of their lives or, or their families' lives. That's got to be tough, but I guess that's probably a motivating factor for you. Well, you know, I tell uh, my young lawyers, uh, we've got a 30-lawyer firm here in Chicago, and we don't write wills, we don't close real estate deals, uh, you're either badly injured or worse. Um, and the uh, people who do what we do are uh, have a you know a mindset that they kind of are the eye of the storm, that they can get in the middle where it's calm and they can navigate around all the frenzy that's uh, in, you know going uh, on around them. And that's their job, to try to shepherd you know, families in times of anxiety and stress and grief and sorrow. I mean, in the last several days, I've spoken on a number of occasions to loved ones who have lost uh, children, uh, both uh, young toddlers as well as uh, young adults. I've, I've spoken with people who are badly injured from medical events and you know, it's just uh, you either have the constitu- you know, the, the constitution for this or you don't, and, and I do have it. So there you go. Yeah, and talking about traveling, and, and, you know, not to put obviously, God willing, nothing's going to happen like this to people. But you, you know, you represented families after the American Airlines crash at O'Hare that a lot of people remember back in '79. You're currently working on uh, with folks, uh, the families of victims of the 737 Max 8 crash in Ethiopia. Um, I mean, well, I guess what I'm saying is you take on these these big cases but and they make big news, but at the end of the day, I'm sure it's about focusing on the individual and the family and trying to get what what they deserve. Well, that's that's correct. I mean, currently I'm the lead counsel for all the families against Boeing in the federal litigation for the Ethiopian air crash that occurred in March of 2019. And I actually just returned from uh, Africa and Europe doing depositions in those cases. And we have a big court hearing coming up this week. Uh, So when you when you work on matters like that, uh, you do. They are complex cases, but you're dealing with people and you're dealing. You know, I represent on that plane. There were passengers from 35 countries around the world. um, And I traveled the world on that case. And. The tears and the grief and the sorrow and anxiety and loss are the same everywhere. People cry just 
the same in Europe as they do in the U.S. and Canada and Africa. And it's, you know, part of our job to seek proper compensation for them consistent with the rule of law uh, and to do so in a professional, competent, ethical way. Yeah, that's but, what we do. Yeah, and you know, like I, I feel like our in our government we have like this system of checks and balances, and each of the the, the government uh, parts of government kind of check each other, and then there's the journalists that are like the fourth estate that are this extra check, and I and I and I do believe that proper litigation and lawyers who know these laws and how it affects them are a check against maybe big companies. I mean, the threat of litigation against them or something major happens, I imagine, is a huge motivating factor for companies to be as safe as they can, whether we're talking about airlines, planes, trains, whatever, just knowing that they may face someone like you or people like you in court and they're going to have to pay tens of millions, if not more money when things go wrong. It's a it's an even stronger motivator to keep the rest of us safe. Do you feel that way, Bob? Well, well, I do feel that way, and in fact, uh, that's been the topic of late, uh, John, in, in a lot of academic circles where we're talking about the criminalization of corporate conduct. And I, I made the comparison the other day. You know, when I was a young lawyer, uh, someone could cross the center line while drunk and kill people, and they really wouldn't uh, get much by way of fine. They, they, jail time has been unheard of. Nowadays, people go to jail, and I, and I think the, the pendulum is swinging. And I, so I think the same is true on the, on the product side, whether it's an airplane or, or a drug or, you know, let's take a look at the opioids epidemic. Uh, there is serious jail time that people can be exposed to senior leadership of a corporation if they, you know, knowingly take risks with the lives and safety of other people in the community. Yeah. And I'd say I say most trend, people, that trend is continuing. Yeah, and I imagine most people would say, you know, not not to say that overregulation is necessarily the answer to things, but I think it's something that we all agree on that there should be consequences for actions that harm, kill people, and for their families. Anyways, I I could dive so deep into this discussion, Bob, after reading through your resume, but I do want to talk about summer travel this year. We're talking about roads. We're talking about bikes. Yeah, I imagine you're seeing well, a lot of cases out seasonal there. Seasonal cases. Seasonal cases. I mean. I have to tell you that we see this time of year a spike in, in certain categories of, of uh, cases and uh, bicycles being first and foremost. And, you know, sadly, in the news in the last uh, several days yeah. and several weeks have been uh, these terrible incidents where uh, motorists, uh, cars, when there's a car versus a bike, the bike is always going to lose. Uh, and so it's it's important for people who on both sides of that, whether you're the motorist or you're the bicyclist, that you need to really step up your game uh, to practice, you know, safe uh, safety while you're operating uh, your vehicle where there are bike lanes and operating your bike when, when you're in one. Uh, and it's, you know, look, we, we can't fix our potholes in this city. So don't even expect to get these barriers for all the bike lanes. It's just not going to happen in terms of the capital costs that are associated with it. So the best defense that you can have uh, is to, uh, if you're riding your bicycle, you know, make sure that you're you're wearing helmets. Make sure that you have the proper reflective material uh, on your bike. You know, remember that the rules of the road apply to you. You know, you're supposed to be going in the same direction of travel, not going the wrong way on a one-way street. And you're not supposed to be weaving in and out. And you're not supposed to go to the right side of the bus or a truck 
that uh, that might be making a right-hand turn. Um, it, it, because you have to be proactive and defensive. And as a driver of a vehicle, same thing. If you're going to be parking your car along a roadway on Wells, and you know that there's a bike lane there, and you're going to open your driver's door, take a look in your rearview mirror to make sure a bike isn't coming along. Oh, and yeah. as the bicyclist, though, you know, the bike, they tell you in the bicyclist, so make sure you're out of that zone of danger. So there's a lot of that on that side. There's swimming uh, that goes on. We actually see it, John, in medical negligence cases. There's a spike in surgical injuries during the summer months. Why? Really? A lot of the docs are on vacation. A lot of the nurses are on vacation. So guess what? You're not necessarily dealing with the A-team every time you might have an operation going on. It's fascinating to see. Yeah. As someone who fills in a lot here on WGN, I'm very familiar with being on the B team. Uh, we do our best, Bob, is what I'm saying. But... <laughs> no, you're not. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I want to go back to the cycling thing for just one moment, because yes. we've seen cases of obviously private cars parked in bike lanes all the time. And maybe, you know, and boy, I hate to try and bring up an argument between cyclists and motorists because I don't feel that does anyone anyone good. Yes, cyclists sometimes blow through red lights and stop signs. They shouldn't do this. Yes, drivers often are paying attention. So I think we're often both in the wrong. But we do see a lot of city vehicles parking in bike lanes. If something were to happen to a biker because of that, do they have potential litigation against a city or a municipality for someone violating that, or does it just depend on all the details? Uh, it, it really depends upon the details. I mean, the uh, city, uh, an action against any local governmental entity, whether it's the city of Chicago, the county of Cook, the state of Illinois, water reclamation district, doesn't matter. There is a level of immunity that they do have. Uh, we call it willful and wanton conduct. Uh, recklessness. They, you know, you may not be able to sue them for ordinary negligence, but you can sue them for recklessness. But when it comes to operating a motor vehicle, they have a duty to follow the rules of the, of the road and, and, the, and the laws that pertain to uh, motor vehicle traffic. They don't get immunity from that. So if they're illegally parked, let's say, uh, you, 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 you can rest assured that if that illegal activity causes a circumstance that leads to an injury, they, they can indeed be exposed to litigation and responsibility and accountability for the harm that's caused. Absolutely. If it's a private vehicle, will you be mostly dealing with an, and you're injured in an accident, whether they were parked in the wrong place or they hit you or, you know, are you dealing with mostly insurance at that point or can you sue an individual driver for their negligence? Well, it's it's actually both because Illinois is is not what we is what we call a direct action statute. You have to directly sue uh, the responsible party. You cannot uh, in Illinois sue only the insurer. So, if Progressive Insurance, Geico, Allstate, State Farm uh, is your insurer, they're going to sue. Uh, Bob Clifford or John Hansen, mm-hmm. and they're going to. But but our insurer is going to defend that case. But our insurer is only responsible for the level of insurance we buy. So frequently we see people buying, you know, I don't know what full coverage is, John. Somebody, right. I'll ask somebody, how much insurance do you have? And they say, well, I got full coverage. Well, that really is meaningless. You really need to know what level of, of insurance you have because if you uh, cause injuries that are, let's say, a jury would award a million dollars and you have $100,000 in insurance, your carrier only has to pay that 100000 and you're on your own for the 900 balance, which you either have to pay or walk down to 219 South Dearborn and declare bankruptcy. Right, right. 
Boy, it's all, boy, we can talk for much longer than the half hour that we have here, Bob. I'm going to take a break, by the way. Uh, CliffordLaw.com. You can call for a free consultation. I saw on the website 312-625-6192. That's 312-625-6192. Not to interrupt, John. I don't know what that number oh. is. It's 312. It's 312-899-9090. Oh, that's way easier. 899-9090. Okay. 312-899-9090. That's why Bob Clifford's the best. It gives you the number right away. Before I go to this break, Bob, I did want to say one text. This came from the yes, 773. Sir. The texter says, Responsible lawsuits are the only way to regulate corporations. Thank him for what he does, please. So I'm passing that along from a texter, Bob. That's very kind. Thank you. I'm going to put you on hold, and we're going to take a break here on Let's Get Legal, powered by the Illinois State Bar Association on WGN. Bob, I uh, I don't own a boat. My brother does, and that's like the best scenario ever because I don't have to take care of it, but I get to enjoy it. But there's a lot I need to know this summer, and everyone does, about water safety. There you go. Well, you know, as I mentioned a moment ago in our first segment, uh, we see uh, uh, what I call seasonal cases, and one of them uh, is the category of where water safety uh, is at risk and, and uh, uh, people are well, you know, uh, to remind themselves about some of the principles of being safe in the water for an example you know don't swim don't go swimming in lake geneva in lake geneva or in uh, lake michigan alone yes uh you should always have you know someone with you you should and look around especially now on lake michigan they have placed the uh safety rings that can be used and and uh you, you know are there for your safety so don't do it alone though and then never, ever let your kids swim unsupervised. Yeah. People just think that they, you know, let their kid get swimming lessons. Now he's six years old. Oh, Johnny can swim. Well, guess what? Johnny can swim as good as a six-year-old can swim, and that's not good enough to be doing it unsupervised. Yeah, uh, You need to wear, you know, you mentioned a boat a moment ago, uh, and I mentioned Lake Geneva. I get up there a lot, and I you, you see it, John, that you see children on these boats without life vests. Now, it's a violation of the rules but partly because people aren't, the adults aren't prepared. They, they didn't equip their boat with the uh, size life vest for a child. And, and if you're really going to be responsible enough to own the boat, then be responsible enough to have the safety measures uh, in place that, you know, your, your guests are going to need to protect their safety. Because guess what? Even on a, you know, a, a lake like Lake Geneva, where you know, it's pretty safe, uh, things can happen, and they have happened. Storms come uh, in, so, things go crazy. I mean, anything can happen out there. Yeah. And, you know, over the winter, I was down in Florida, and I saw these kids practicing how long they could hold their breath. Okay? Well, guess what? One of the kids got in trouble with that game, holding their breath. And so if you look at safety consultants, they will tell you that's just a really bad game for people to play uh, when it comes to young children uh, and uh, because it's it's very dangerous to, to do so, especially when it's unsupervised. Yeah. And then finally, and, and this may sound a little corny, but it's a really good thing for to learn CPR. If you're going to own a boat, uh, if you're going to have a pool, uh, it's really worth your while to, to take a CPR class so that, heaven forbid, something happens, uh, uh, you know, poolside or at the lake when you're there having fun, uh, you can help somebody out. And, and not only that, I mean, I, you know, we go back to bicycles for a moment. I know of an instance just a short time ago, John, where uh, there was a lady following uh, an accident that occurred, a, a, a bicycle was rear-ended, 
and the lady behind just had taken a CPR class. She saved that guy's life wow. by knowing CPR. Uh, yeah, being a responsible boat owner is so important. I'm I'm just thankful that my brother's a first responder, so he's got everything on the list. And, you know, we've been stopped by police just for random checks out on the water, and my brother almost ex- likes it because he's like, look at all the things I have perfectly set up and ready to go. Everyone should have that list on the boat ready to go. Bob, I only have a few Absolutely. more seconds. I just have one question. Let's say you are the boat, you own the boat, and, you know, something happens while you're either driving it or people are swimming off your boat, and you don't have all the proper equipment or you didn't follow all the rules. Can you be liable for some of the damages? Oh, absolutely. No question about it. So, uh, you know, listen, these are things that matter, and lawyers like me will come along and say, what do you mean you didn't have the proper life vest? What do you mean that you didn't have the proper lines on that boat? Uh, You know, those things matter, and safety uh, is first and foremost, and accountability will, will be measured against you if you don't have them. Bob Clifford, it was great to chat with you, and I hope you can chat again soon, okay? We sure will, John. Thank you for having me today. Bob Clifford of, yeah, for sure. of CliffordLaw.com, 312-899-9090, 312-899-9090, and uh, you can call for that free consultation, of course. Okay, uh, we're going to take a break, then we got the news. Now here's more of my voice on WGN. In the last hour, I did the question of the day, which was the easiest question apparently I've ever had on this show, which is I gave a certain different suburbs. You can't do this before 7, 8, or 9 in the morning, and it was mowing your lawn. And I have gone down a rabbit hole of laws about mowing your lawn. And there's an interesting story, and we're going to get to our guest here in a moment, uh, from LawnStarter.com about how many people have been foreclosed on because they never mowed their lawn. And there's a lot of people that are environmentally against it. There's some people that say this is my property. But states are allowed to regulate mow your lawn things. Court challenges over the years have defined property rights as substantial but not absolute. Just like you can't cite First Amendment protection if you say fire in a crowded theater, right? Like there's laws to property, but it's not absolute. And that state laws in the United States, I mean, these decisions go back all the way to the 50s. A court decision in Berman v. Parker established the legal principle of eminent domain, of course, that we talk about. But anyways, if you're curious, you do have to mow your lawn if your city says you do. And you will have to pay those fines. Just a quick little aside there. Oh, and then one texter said that we live in a civilized world and anyone that mows their lawn before 9 a.m. is uncivilized. Come on. I think 8 a.m. is fine. All right. Let's get John Nagel on the line. He's the senior associate attorney at Gordon Law Offices. John, welcome to the program. Hi, John. Thanks for inviting me on today. Yeah. Double John here for the next uh, few minutes. So <laughs> do you, what time do you mow your lawn at, John? If you, do you get up early on the weekend and do it or what? Oh, before nine o'clock. That's just rude. <laughs> no one should oh, okay. be up early on the weekend, anyway. All right. Okay. So you're you're in that camp. That sounds good. Uh, John, it's great to chat with you. You're a U of I guy originally, right? That's where you got your uh, bachelor degree. Me as well. Oh yeah, I love Champagne. It's uh, always a pleasure being able to go back down there and uh, visit the campus. It's uh, still beautiful. What was uh, one of your what, what was your haunt? What was your uh, your your bar spot that you went to down at U of I? Oh, uh, back in the day, camps. That always uh, that was a fun place. Yeah, <laughs> I remember more, the uh, yeah. everything was sticky there. <laughs> yeah, they got a new camps now. Anyways, that's not why we brought you here. We brought you here to talk about the topic of small businesses and what is happening with audits. And I was teasing this as like, boy, what a couple of years small businesses have had, and now the only Department of Revenue is really going in on some small businesses and uh, even forcing some audits. Why? What are they doing? So recently, it looks like the state of Illinois has started to um, use an algorithm to compare the 
state income tax return that's being filed with the ST1s that are filed on a monthly basis by these small businesses. On the ST1s, where they report their uh, sales tax, they also report their gross receipts. And if they take a look and see that over the 2021 calendar year, the ST1s, when they're added up, don't equal the gross receipts that are reported on their income tax return, they know that there wasn't the proper amount of sales tax collected and remitted to the state. I so see. They're flagging these businesses pretty easily now. So it was a monthly thing that you did that was, what is it, perfunctory? You just say, here's how much we did, here's how much uh, sales tax we paid, okay. And then it wasn't ever really collected and compared to automatically to what, at the end of the year, you said how much money you made. And now that's more of an automated system. Yes, it looks like the, the Department of Revenue has sort of caught up with technology, and now they can run this comparison in an instance, rather than dedicating a examiner to go through a company's books at, at random. So now they can see if there's a discrepancy right away, then they'll assign someone to take a look at it, and that's when the uh, the audit is initiated. What types of small businesses are we talking about? Uh, I've seen a lot of restaurants and grocery stores targeted. Um, those seem to be ones where there's a high volume of uh, uh, point-of-sales transactions um, on a monthly basis, and those, if, if you don't if you're not careful and reconcile your books and report everything accurately, um, that can result in these, um, these audits convincing. Are they looking for like large discrepancies or is it, uh, you know, a couple bucks here or there? How does that work? Uh, most of the people that come to us, there are some quite large discrepancies. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know if there's a set amount that the state has decided to target, but we've seen it for only um, maybe $10,000 a difference from, their SC1 total for a month to uh, what it should have been. And that still triggered an examination. I imagine some people will say, well, yeah, you need to keep your books straight and everything should be great. And if you're not doing that, you should be, you know, in trouble for that. But I imagine that there are some very honest mistakes that happen in bookkeeping or sometimes the POS systems can mess things up as well. I mean, these aren't people that are trying to dodge paying their taxes for the most part. These are just small business owners where something's gone a little off. In the most cases, that's exactly right. Uh, the POS systems that a lot of companies use need to be updated on a monthly basis. And if those updates um, aren't maintained, all the records could be completely off uh, moving forward. And then it just gets compounded and worse uh, throughout the year. Um, so one of the main um, uh, goals of uh, audit defense is to make sure that the state is informed of these um, perhaps negligent or unintentional actions that businesses um, did when reporting. And we uh, strive to prevent the um, the fraud penalty from being assessed. And that can be up to 50% of the, uh, the tax balance. Oh, there's a penalty like on top of it. So you would owe that much and mm-hmm. you'd pay 50% of that on top of it. Yes, and that can be quite substantial for some businesses that uh, weren't um, whether their system wasn't reporting correctly throughout the year. Right, and they don't take into account why it happened. They just look at what happened. And correct, correct. And the state has uh, rough guidelines. They won't disclose exactly what they are, but if you're off by, we'll say, 250000 then they could say this falls into the, the willful fraud penalty uh, threshold, and now we have a 50% penalty on top of the, uh, the tax that wasn't paid. And you're saying this is happening more. Is it, is it more anecdotal, or, just, or you're getting more calls of this from clients who said, hey, this is happening to me? Uh, it's been a huge influx over the last, I would say, um, maybe eight or nine months. Um, more audits are being uh, commenced, and more people are uh, requesting help to deal with it. 
It would be pretty intimidating at first when you get that letter from the uh, Illinois Department of Revenue, and then, then the calls start coming, too, where they want to visit your business. They want to look at all of your books, all your bank statements. Um, it can go back to uh, three years, even. Wow, and that's what I was going to ask next. How does an audit work with the Illinois Department of Revenue? Well, typically they'll reach out to you um, by mail first, uh, just saying that they're going to look at your uh, probably two to three years, and they'll request all of your point-of-sale reports, all of your sales journals, your bank statements for that period, and they're going to uh, compare that with the income tax returns that were filed and also the S-2-1s that were filed. And once that happens, if they do see that there is a discrepancy, uh, that's when they get into the discussion of was this just negligence on the business's part? Uh, was there an error in their uh, computer system? Or perhaps they were trying to evade um, paying their sales tax that was owed. Mm-hmm. And then what happens next? I mean, is it a matter of here's the bill and this is what you owe? Is there, do you ever get a chance to be before a judge? Like, I, I've never been audited and I don't know how it works with a business either. Well, uh, typically it's before the Department of Revenue um, auditor. Uh, we'll provide them uh, a spreadsheet of the figures. And if there is a discrepancy, we'll try to explain how that discrepancy came about. Okay. Um, maybe there was a new point of sale system in place. There could have been a turnover in management that they didn't know how to run the, uh, the POS system. And uh, generally just try to um, give the business a side of, why the mistake happened. So there is and some limit the audit just to uh, the, the tax that was owed. Right. So there is some leniency in terms of a, hey, look, this was a human error. This wasn't fraud. And you can try and argue in their defense. It's not just black or white. Uh, absolutely. Okay. That's important to know. John, we got to take a quick commercial break. Stay on the line, okay? All right, no problem, John. And uh, go to com for more information about this. More with John Nagel from Gordon Law Office on WGN Next. John Nagel, who's the Senior Associate Attorney at Gordon Law Offices. And you wouldn't be surprised, John, people are texting in small business owners that are dealing with this. You aren't wrong. A lot of people getting letters. And I imagine when someone gets a letter, that can be a frightening experience. Oh, absolutely. Um, Most of my clients, uh, their immediate thought is they're going to put my business down. I'm going to have to sell off uh, my assets, and the tax man is coming. It's a it usually does not result in any sort of immediate action whenever the uh, Illinois Department of Revenue issues these letters. They're just giving you the, the heads up that they are looking into your previous tax returns. And at that point is when we would recommend that a uh, tax attorney be hired to assist them in the audit process. Yeah, I was just going to ask. It's right when they get that letter. Or do some businesses maybe, is it a good idea to have a tax attorney on even before you file your taxes? Like, I mean, imagine a lot of small business owners trying to do everything themselves, but sometimes it's not so bad to have a professional look over everything. Absolutely. And um, you could have a tax attorney review your ST1s before they're sent in, um, compare them to the POS reports to make sure that uh, everything is um, itemized correctly. They're categorized correctly, I should say. And there's many items that um, you wouldn't have to pay sales tax on if they were purchased at your store. You know, like snack foods, medicines, uh, newspapers and magazines, um, you know, regular, uh, like, candy. That that wouldn't be something that would be subject to the sales tax, and you would want to make sure that uh, your computer system is removing that and the Department of Revenue isn't trying to assess a tax for those particular items. 
Does the Department of Revenue help out with people who are getting started to figure out how to work and make sure the POS systems work and that they know exactly because there's county tax or city taxes, there's state mm-hmm. taxes? I mean, are, is it is it do they make it easy? And I'm not trying to like pass blame on a government organization. I'm sure there's a lot of hardworking folks just trying to do their jobs there. But do they make it easy or is it really hard for small business owners to figure this out? Uh, they they don't hold your hand during the process. Okay. They do have access on their websites on what needs to be reported and how to report it, um, but they're not uh, going to walk you through it. If you um, uh, are having questions on how to report everything accurately, the best uh, way to do that would be to contact a uh, professional tax attorney and have them uh, walk you through setting it up initially. Yeah, and that's what I was getting at, because I have tried so many times just doing basic federal returns. Now, I got a lot of 1099s and some other stuff that makes it a little bit more complicated. And anytime you have a question and you go to the book in which it explains it, the language in which they use on how to explain tax laws could not be any more complicated. <laughs> yeah, the, the legalese in the tax world is uh, it's very convoluted. It is not... Uh, easy to decipher. Um, luckily, at, a, at Gordon Law, we have many attorneys that have been doing this for about a decade now. And we're very familiar with the uh, the state and federal tax laws and can help advise clients, especially small businesses, whenever they start filing these um, uh, sales tax uh, returns with the state. Yeah, for sure. GordonLawLTD.com. You can call them 847-580-1279. We had a text from someone saying, I got a demand letter for 27 cents as a small business owner, an audit by an audit account who was training the auditors. I don't know if that's why they chose that 20 cents. I don't know what, but that seems that, that the piece of paper that the, the envelope, the stamp costs more than the 27 cents. is more than the, the tax debt. <laughs> I imagine that's that does un- not appear to be a good use of state resources right there. <laughs> no, exactly. Uh, no, no, that doesn't. That'd be one I would just pay. And then they can throw on that fraud charge, I guess, if they want to, for another thirteen. Yeah, whatever that, it is. That's no thirteen cents on there. <laughs> yeah, what a, I, I imagine you know, small businesses is something that you represent, and maybe other people at the firm too. I imagine you represent uh, other folks too, just every, individuals looking for help too. Oh yes, yes. Um, on a day to day basis, we represent uh, individuals that are dealing with um, Illinois uh, tax debt uh, that they owe for their personal income, and then also uh, individuals and businesses that owe the IRS. Um, we also help people disclose their uh, cryptocurrency transactions um, accurately. Uh, that, that's sort of like a, an emerging new type of income that a right. lot of people just aren't familiar with. So um, we have an entire team of attorneys that work on cryptocurrency reconciliations to make sure it's all accurately uh, reported. I imagine there's a lot of people listening now that uh, owe taxes, haven't filed taxes for the past couple of years. It's something that's keeping them up at night. I imagine calling someone like you can help to start people at least sleep better knowing that someone's looking into that, right? Absolutely. The, the first thing we would do for our clients is file a power of attorney with the IRS, let them know that uh, we're looking into the situation to help bring them into compliance. Um, whenever we notify them of that, the, the IRS will typically place a 30 to 60 day hold to pause any type of collection action. If the IRS has already started collection action, that's when we um, it's very important that they contact the tax attorney so we can try to lift any type of levies that have been put on their income or uh, garnishments on wages. So that's, uh, that can be uh, detrimental to maintain your monthly living expenses. For sure. 
John Nagel from Gordon Law Group, GordonLawLTD.com, 847-580-1279. John, do you mind hanging on the line a little bit longer? i got a few more questions about that. Yeah, no problem at all, sir. All right. We're going to put John on hold. We're going to tap more about tax. If you have questions, I see them coming in on the text line. Add yours as well, 312-981-7200. We'll do that after the news here on Let's Get Legal, powered by the Illinois State Bar Association, GordonLawLTD.com. All right, John, we got a question from a listener. Are you ready? Yeah, absolutely, John. All right, and of course, if anytime you don't know an answer, yeah, I know you'll look into it. We can get a proper answer. But they, 708 wants to know... Please ask if they could assist an individual who a CPA made a huge error on emitting reporting over $100,000 of caregiver's deduction on an individual income tax filing. I think I read that correctly. I imagine there are avenues at least you could look into something like that, right? Oh, absolutely. And uh, if you notice that the error was uh, was on a tax return uh, right after you filed it, the best course of action would be to file an amended tax return to uh, make sure that it is all reported correctly so you get credit for that. Okay, that's good to know. But yeah, they can call you up and help with that. Someone wants Absolutely. to know, does the IRS have installment plans if I'm swimming in tax debt? Uh, yes, fortunately, the IRS has several options. Um, first, there's a, uh, a time-based repayment uh, programs that they offer where you can have up to six years to repay the total balance that's owed. If um, that minimum payment over six years wouldn't pay the full balance and allow you to still maintain your uh, monthly living expenses, then we could look at providing a uh, financial information to the IRS to show what you, you could afford on, uh, to pay towards the uh, tax balance that's owed. And if uh, that both of those avenues don't work, then there's also hardship programs like a currently non-collectible status that can be pursued or even a settlement arrangement with the IRS. Uh, they refer to it as an offer in compromise. Oh, okay. An offer in compromise. That's where you say, hey, look, I owed 50000 and now I only owe five. And I've heard from people that, that say that, that, you know, obviously someone like you would help out with that. But those do come with strict rules, right? You have to follow a lot of that. Yes, they're very strict rules. Usually the settlement amount needs to be paid in full within five months of it being offered. Um, so if that isn't manageable, that may not be the best route to, um, to pursue. Uh, you also cannot owe any balances uh, for the next several years after the settlement has uh, been accepted. So if you end up owing a balance and you can't pay it in full by April 15th, then the settlement is uh, negated and the whole balance that was wiped off is added back on. Okay, so that may not be for everyone. Yeah, boy, when you, when you talk through this stuff, it's important to see why, and it's easy to see why, you want someone in your corner, right, against the IRS. Uh, absolutely. Um, everyone at the IRS, they are familiar with all of these um, exceptions and rules that can default an agreement that you think is ironclad. Um, you need to have an attorney uh, inform you and update you on um, the necessary steps to maintain these agreements. Uh, to stay in good standing. Six Rio wants to know uh, that they said that their former spouse did a lot of bad things. I'm still getting collections. Is there any relief for me? It, it, it depends. It, uh, I summed it out. I summed it out very quickly. There was a longer story there, but I don't want to share the whole thing. Okay. If, um, if there is a program called the Innocent Spouse Program that. If the spouse did not have reason to know, and there's no way that they, they could have known about the, uh, the tax activity that may not have been reported accurately or not reported at all on a tax return, 
they can apply for relief um, uh, through the innocent spouse uh, program with the IRS. And that could limit the balance, even if it was from a married filing joint return, just to the, uh, the, the other person on the return that filed it. Okay. Uh, someone wanted to know that they uh, have been getting more 1099 work and that they have been owing the IRS each year for the past couple of years, and then they got an extra bill on top for not paying quarterly. Is it easy to pay quarterly payments? Do I need to pay quarterly if I'm going to owe at the end of the year? For 1099 uh, workers, it's always recommended that you make your quarterly estimated tax payments throughout the year. Uh, that'll prevent these uh, quarterly um penalties if, or failure to pay your tax throughout the year from being assessed. And it also uh, lessens the burden whenever it's time to file the tax return. If you've made these estimated tax payments uh, during the year, then you don't have a lump sum due whenever it's time to file your tax return and it shows that you have um, uh, this bid tax bill owed. Right, because what they're trying to do, they, it's a penalty, but really they're just trying to get you to pay the interest on what you if, you, if you didn't pay it in March or you didn't pay it every three months, they're trying to get the interest on what they would have earned, just like they have to pay you interest on when they pay you back, right? Uh, correct. And you only are required to file the uh, the quarterly estimated tax payments if you reach certain income thresholds uh, on the previous tax year. Okay. So it's not something if you only are expecting um, a small amount into 99 income, you wouldn't be required to make these estimated tax payments on a quarterly basis. You can you can do it. That's encouraged still to pay your taxes throughout the, the year before the return is due. <laughs> but um, it, it wouldn't be required unless you reach a certain uh, income threshold uh, based upon your previous year's tax return. Right. John Nagel we're chatting with from Gordon Law Group. You can visit GordonLawLTD.com. You can call him up at 847-580-1279. Kathy was texting in, I was so worried about taxes that I owed. I had someone looked at it. I highly recommend getting someone on like John who can help me sleep at night. And really, probably that's what it's all about. I imagine there's some people out there that didn't know there's installment plans, didn't know that there's some I don't know if you want to call it forgiveness, but more of a settlement that you can reach. Do you find that people just didn't know that that's an option for them? Uh, yes, uh, very frequently people come and they're uh, just confused. They're uh, they're not sure what their options are. They think that the IRS is going to come and confiscate uh, their car, or make them sell their home, make them close their business down. And there are some options. They're just not very uh, well known, uh, but uh and tax attorneys are well-versed in all options available and can guide them through to whichever one best fits their unique situation. Yeah, for sure. Any other advice for people out there? I know that the IRS has been asking for a bigger budget so that they can hire more people uh, to go after and continue to try and get money that they are owed. I imagine if that happens, audits could be going up for a lot of people and having your number stored in their phone is probably a good thing, John. <laughs> Uh, absolutely, and uh, everyone should uh, maintain their records of all their income, all their expenses and deductions for a minimum of three years. That's how far back the IRS typically will um, look at previous tax returns for audits. As long as you maintain your records and report everything accurately, the audit process will be a breeze. Okay. If you think that you may have issues, uh, contact us. We can help amend the returns and correct anything before a actual audit uh, commences. What's a meeting with you look like, John? Uh, typically, our consultations, uh, the um, the client will, or the potential clients will uh, come to us with an issue. We'll discuss it with them, 
analyze what the possible uh, options are to resolve it. And if they can resolve it on their own, we'll encourage them to take certain actions. Uh, but in most cases, uh, a tax attorney would be needed to um, sort of navigate the IRS protocols. Should, and that's when we would tell them uh, what our next steps would be, how to get the power of attorney filed with us, and um, what documents we would need to um, you know, address their uh, specific concerns. Should people have those documents ready to go when they come and talk with you? Um, not necessarily. Uh, the important documents to have would be any type of recent IRS communications. Uh, so if they sent you a notice saying we're going to take a look at your 2020 tax return, or if they have a notice uh, saying that they have a uh, large balance owed now from a, a previous year that they didn't realize that there was a balance owed, uh, we can contact the IRS um, and find out how this balance came about that they uh, were previously unaware of or what exactly they were uh, looking at in an examination of their uh, previously filed tax returns. Wait, John, does the IRS actually answer your phone calls? Uh, they do. We do have to wait on line there on hold for a while, but uh, they will answer our calls eventually and give us the uh, the answers to our questions. We got a lot of texts, and I'll just end with this because we always every time we talk taxes here on WGN, we hear from people that have not gotten their returns back for this year. Of course, we're still pretty early mm-hmm. in this. See, oh, well, not that early, but or even like the year before, the year before that. I imagine you still hear from people. That they just have to wait, and I know it's annoying, but they just aren't through with everything yet, right? Yes, uh, the IRS is very, very backlogged, especially on uh, paper file tax returns. Um, they are projecting eight months to process them at this point. So if you haven't filed uh, your tax return for 2021 yet, if you did an extension, um, we highly recommend filing it uh, electronically. Uh, you get the return back so much faster. And for previous year tax returns that were paper filed, they're saying it can be up to a year at this point. Wow. So if you are anticipating a refund from a, uh, a past year tax return, it, it's going to take a while. Yeah, for sure. All right, uh, John, we appreciate your time. Gordon Law Group. Go to GordonLawLTD.com. That's 847-580-1279. John, have a good one, okay? Thanks, John. Thanks for having me on. Yeah, we appreciate that. Okay, I'm going to tell you a little bit about what happened to me on my way home from Europe and the legal ramifications and reasoning behind why I was told I had to go through a bunch of extra screening. And we'll wrap things up here on Let's Get Legal Powered by the Illinois State Bar Association. John Hanson here for Let's Get Legal Powered by the Illinois State Bar Association. So I had the amazing opportunity to go to Europe for a couple weeks Uh for my honeymoon, which had been delayed for a couple of years. I imagine a lot of people were in that boat. But we decided to go to London and Paris. But we had this is a story that leads into something important, I promise. We had to change a couple of times where we were going to go at the times because of COVID for some other reasons as well. So we ended up buying these one-way tickets, one to London, and this was just a couple of weeks ago. And then we took the Eurostar, the train under, you know, under the channel, which was pretty cool, goes real fast, uh, to Paris. And then we flew one way from Paris uh, back home yesterday. And when I was checking in for the flight two days ago, right, like 24 hours before your flight, for whatever reason, I wasn't getting a boarding pass. And it kind of worried me. I didn't freak out too much about it. I, I, I figured I'd get it at the airport when I, I, when I went, and I did. I got the boarding pass. But there they slapped a big old orange sticker on it, and it had a designation on it, SSSS. I don't know if anyone has ever gone through this, 312-981-7200. Feel free to text or call on if you have. But what that is is the Secondary Security Screening Selection. 
And it's airport security. It's in the United States primarily, but it's also for any planes traveling to the United States. And what that meant was, is number one, I couldn't get a digital boarding pass. I had to carry around my paper one all day. But that at any point in the process of security and getting out to the airplane, they could stop me, pull me aside, and do whatever they wanted, within reason, of course. And they were all very courteous to make sure that I wasn't a security threat. And this has been in place in the United States now for, for a while. And, and, and you can imagine, of course, you know, there's great reasons why to do it. And again, they were all super courteous, but it was a kind of a nerve-wracking situation. And I just kept on thinking the whole time, I'm like, who on Let's Get Legal, one of my lawyers, could help me if I ever needed some help with some of this stuff? Because some people have, been, have missed flights because of this. Because in the security line, they take like a half hour. They pull you aside. This didn't happen to me. And they go through every single item inside your luggage. And then they say, all right, go ahead and pack it on up. Like, the packing's already hard enough. Luckily for me, I only had to do the thing at the gate. So they called my name during the boarding process. I was kind of expecting it because I spent two hours Googling this and what was going to happen. And they went through and they, you know, they, they patted me down. But they also took these strips and they, they wiped my all, they had me open up all my bags, all these things, every electronic, every pocket. They wiped these strips all over me and then they plug them into these machines. And what I, they didn't explain it, but I looked later is they're looking for any explosive residue that may be anywhere on there. So it's hugely preventative and it wasn't all that big of a deal, but it has been challenged by certain people because they don't tell us why these lists happen or why these things happen to certain people. There's certain people out there that get this every single time they fly. Either they belong to a certain group that the United States government says, you know, has a higher risk of this or that, but they don't explain the Department of Homeland Security. And that makes sense, too, who's on the list. But if you ever want to avoid it, what they say is the reasons why I got tagged. We bought one-way flights. Now, because we were going round trip to Europe, but we did one-way flights. That's one thing. If you buy international plane tickets within two or three weeks of your travel, or if you pay in cash, we didn't pay in cash, but any of those three things have a higher risk of you getting flagged for this inconvenience. And I will give the staff credit in Paris at De Gaulle. Every single time I went and had to present my boarding pass, they said, oh, John, you won the lottery today. You're the lucky one that gets this extra screening. Not a big deal, but I just wanted to look into the legal reasoning behind it. And there have been lawsuits brought against it, but usually the Supreme Court and all the other courts hold up that this is the right of the government to ensure that this happens and that we have safe travel. But yes, If you ever see the SSSS designation, or if you can't get that digital boarding pass before the flight the day before, it's not the only reason why, but that may be what's happening. And having gone through it, let me just say, relax, breathe. It's going to be a-okay. You're going to end up getting on your flight. No problem. Just be nice and do everything they say, and you'll get through just fine. Just a little shared experience I had there. Let's take a break. Then we'll wrap things up on Let's Get Legal.